All right, well, we're going to pick up where we left off. We've been in the series, The New Man, and we've been working through um, understanding who we are in Christ. Ultimately, it's where we're going to go. And um, this actually worked out way better than I had planned to get to where we are today because I did not anticipating it working out since it is Christmas, right? Like, well, it's Christmas Eve if you want to get technical, but tomorrow is Christmas, which is where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And so before we get too far, I want to go back and I want to read again out of Colossians chapter 3. It says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Barbian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and all. We were raised with Christ. When we give our lives to Christ, this new man is formed in us. The old man died on the cross with him and was resurrected into this new man. Therefore, the things of the past are just that. They're things of the past. He didn't take something old and redo it. He took something dead and brought it to life. And we have to get that. Because to do the things that God's called us to do, we have to walk with an authority and we have to walk on this earth with some sort of confidence in who we are in Him. Because without that, you won't do anything. A sports analogy that is often used when we talk about this is that a confident player will outplay an unconfident player if they have the same physical attributes because there's something that confidence brings. Confidence will take you through where something else may not. And so we have to be confident in who we are in Him. That's the key to everything. And we've been talking about this in Him concept. And in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 12, it says, We do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are sound mind, it is for you. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We're to live for Christ. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How does this happen? How do we become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ? It's one way 
And I'll talk about this a little bit more tonight. But one way, that is giving your life to Him, repenting and turning from your way, and that new man is created. So going to church doesn't get you there. Giving to the poor doesn't get you there. Being a nice person doesn't get you there. Those are all great things to do, but they don't make you right with God because it is not based off of what we bring to the table. It's based on us receiving what He brought to the table. And the beginning of that, at least for what we're concerned with, starts today in what we're celebrating. That is the birth of Christ. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, it says this, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. We have been going through all the script. We went through the Old Testament. For two weeks, we looked at that briefly, of how all of this was pointing to Christ. We, talk, we spent an entire year doing that um, in depth, but we're going back and seeing what was he doing before he showed up on the earth. Because once we get to that point, most people know that. You don't have to go to church to know that part of the story, as you're going to see here in a minute. Because going to church, you're going to hear about Jesus, how he was born, how he did some good things. He was a good guy, even if you don't believe he was the Son of God and the Messiah, that at least what he had to say was good practical information and a way to live your life. But what was he doing before that? We talked about this chess match that is going on, this cosmic chess match that is taking place as he is organizing all the events to take place to bring us to the point that we are today. Now, I told you when we started this series that there's a good chance along the way we're going to kick over some sacred cows. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's a churchy term that we use, that you've held this deeply held belief that is actually not founded in truth. And the Christmas story is very much like that. Very much. So, don't hate me, don't throw things at me, but we're going to look at what Scripture says today. So when we talk about the Christmas story, we, these are things that we think about. These kids are telling what they've heard. How many of those kids were raised in church? I don't know. It doesn't say. Now, my favorite one is that Mary set out cookies for Santa. That's, that's fantastic. So that was a new one for me. But when we get into what the Bible has to say about it, remember, we're watching God lay out all the pieces in order to get to the end, right? In Genesis, we have paradise lost. In Revelation, we have paradise regained. And everything in between that is how God does it. In Isaiah chapter 9, here's a verse that you're going to hear uh, all the time around this time uh, year, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now here's the question. Who is the us? We say us, but this is Israel. Because Isaiah the prophet, they're in captivity. He's prophesying the coming Messiah. 800 years before Jesus was born. He says unto us, because he is the Jewish Messiah. You have to remember that. It is so critical to understand that. That yes, He is the Messiah for all people, but He came first to the nation of Israel. And we know who the child was. He's obviously Jesus. And then in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. This is a prophecy saying that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem as part of Judah, which was the region, if you will. It would be a good way to look at that. And so as we jump into this Christmas story today, we're going to look at it from the perspective of what the Bible says and not our traditions. As I said, we will be doing some cow tipping today. You just have to promise to abide with me. Stay, stay calm. Don't throw stuff. That's all I ask. All right. So let's jump into Luke chapter 2. 
And we're going to start in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, and who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And Excuse me, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. My goodness, there is so much here um, where we get a lot of really bad traditions. So let's look at this. First of all, this decree from Caesar Augustus, this was Julius Caesar's grand nephew that took over and was reigning. He reigned up until the time of Herod and he ends up dying. So Jesus, we think, was born about 4 BC or just before that. We think he died somewhere in the upper 20s. We don't know because they didn't have necessarily birth certificates. But this whole thing, this Caesar Augustus Quirinius guy, is giving us a timeline to give us a point of reference where we can go back in history and we can look at this. And so Joseph leaves Galilee and he goes to the city of Naz- out of the city of Nazareth, which is where he's from, which is where Jesus, remember, he is called a Nazarene. He was, he was part of Nazareth later on because that's where they were from. But they go to the city of De- David, which was Bethlehem. Now, why did they call Bethlehem the city of David? Because if you know what we've talked about, the city of David is actually in Jerusalem. So why are they calling Bethlehem the city of David? Well, this is very simple. We'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Remember, at this point, Saul has just told, or excuse me, God has told Samuel that Saul will no longer be the king, and they're going to raise up a new king, the one that he chooses. And that's what he's getting ready to do. He tells him to fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his son. So why, where is he going? He's going to Bethlehem. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and he went to Bethlehem. Why is this called the city of David? Because he's going to go through all the sons he can't find. When he says, do you have any others? Well, we got one who's keeping the sheep. He's in Bethlehem, right? This is the city of David because this is where David came from. You guys understand that? That's why that's happening. Now, what was David doing when they came, when Samuel came to anoint him as king? He was watching the sheep. He was a shepherd, right? That is critical to understand what I'm going to get to in the end here. So I'm not going to go too much further with that, but... Anyway, he's watching the sheep. Now, let's jump down here. We're going to go back to verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, how the story goes and how we hear it is that she's like eight and a half months pregnant. So he throws her on the back of a camel or on the back of a donkey and they head off for Bethlehem, right? How many of you women would appreciate that? 
None, none of you women would appreciate that. And us men would not appreciate that. Because the whole time you're like, why didn't we leave sooner? Why did it take so long to get going? Why couldn't you, whatever, you know? It wouldn't be good for anybody. But that's not what this says, right? It says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. They weren't scrambling around. They were in Bethlehem the entire time. And then it was time for the baby to be born. So there is no scramble. But then here's another one. There was no room. They laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. So what do we picture? They're scrambling into Bethlehem because this, this census has been called. And this is a taxing thing is what they're doing. They're calling all the people to their hometown. It takes several years to complete something like this because they didn't have the little postcard that you filled out and stopped, dropped in the mail. So they would call all these people in, and the story goes, they're scrambling out trying to find a place to stay because she's going to give birth at any moment. And so they're checking all the hotels, and Motel 6 is booked, and the Holiday Inn is booked, the Ramada is booked. There is no room left. So what do they do? They head out to a barn, and they have a baby, and they throw them in the manger. That's the story. But that's not what happens. Because as we said, the time came that she gave birth. They were already there. So there is no mad scramble going on. The other thing here is this word in would be better translated room. Because it comes from the Hebrew word or the Greek word in this case, katalima, which is in a reference to a guest room. How do I know that? Let me show you. Luke 22, verse 11. Then you shall go to the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Catalima is the same word used for in previously. It's the same book, same writer. Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. It is a guest room. They are not looking for a hotel. Now, let me show you a picture. This is what a house looked like during the time here. That they would have a bottom portion and an upper portion. Up here is the guest room. Up here is where De or Jesus had the Last Supper, in the upper room. The upper room is where the apostles were in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down. They were sitting in a room much like this. And so what would happen, remember, Jewish people received their own. And they were all going to their lineage place, they're going to their house uh, where they were brought up. Is that at night they would bring the animals in here. And they would have the kitchen there and they'd have some storage and they would kind of hang out here. But up here is where they would stay and they would sleep. Okay? So there was no room for them in the inn. She's ready to give birth. Now, why is that? Because all of the family is likely staying there. Now, how many of you women want an audience as you're giving birth? The answer is none. Right? Now, I know that after you have your first child and there's a bunch of doctors and nurses standing around, shame goes out the window. But it's not, you know, you want to see people in that room as possible. And believe me, most people don't want to be in that room either. So what they're looking for. So one of the places that they may have had, throw out the whole barn thing. There is no barn. They may have had Jesus right there in that part because they brought the animals in. Would there be a manger there? A manger is just a feed trough? Possibly. That's a possibility. That's theory number one. That one makes sense. I'm going to show you another theory at the end which uh, I think fits very nicely. So you've got this whole, we've got this whole narrative wrong. They're not scrambling around. They're not in a mad dash trying to find a place. There's no room left because the place is packed. They want some privacy. They could have easily gone to the downstairs portion there and had that baby because there was no room in the guest room, not the motel, okay? So the story is completely wrong. Another thing, you guys know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? How, how the Good Samaritan picks up the guy and he goes to the motel and goes to the innkeeper. It's a different word used there, referring to a hotel like we think of. 
So it's not even the same thing. We have to be careful with that. So we've got that, but what's the next part of the story? You've got the Magi, right? The wise men coming from Persia. And they're traveling in, and they get there like Jesus is born, and a few minutes later, they show up. Well, let's look at this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, hold on. When did they come from Jerusalem? After he was born. So they didn't show up when he was there, right? As he, it's after they were born. It's like they started the trip after he was born. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Where was that written? In the book of Isaiah. So you've got these wise men coming from Persia. They're coming here, and they are creating a ruckus here. The king, Herod, is freaking out. Why is he freaking out? Because they came to worship the king, and they said that to the king. This is a threat on his kingdom. You guys see why this is a problem? Now, how many of them came? Right? It's three, right? Wrong. It does not say three. It never says three. They bring three gifts. But it does not say three. When they travel, there's likely several hundred of them. The whole city is in an uproar over this whole thing. That's Herod is freaking out. And they're going around asking, where is the king of the Jews born? Remember, at this point, Israel is far away from God. They're really not serving God. And they're thinking, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. I would think that the Jews would know where he is. So they're asking around, and they go to the king also. But they would think they would know their own scriptures. Now, who are these magi? They are followers of what's called Zoroastrianism. And they were one of the world's oldest religions and one of the biggest one at that time that comes from ancient Persia and Babylon. Now, as you guys know, if you trace all this stuff, all occultic practices have their origins out of Babylon. Their studies include, they're in magic, philosophy, they are dream interpreters, they're sacred writings, and astrology. But the dream interpreter is the most important one for what we're talking about. We get the word magic and magician from magi. That's where that word comes from. So they're cruising into town. There's probably a hundred or so of them. There's a whole train of them. I mean, if you've ever seen any of the, like, uh, the, the Arabian movies and stuff, like Aladdin and stuff, they were never flying solo. Why did they not do that? Because along the way, it was a treacherous path. And you've got people that are going to attack you and kill you. You need more people there to back you up. If there's a whole group of them coming, you're likely not going to get some rogue guy that's going to run off and try to kill you. And so they always traveled in pack. They figured that any Jew would know where Jesus was because it was prophesied and the star had appeared. And so there were about an 800-mile trip and it would take them about 40 days. Let me show you this map. This gives us an idea. We don't know for sure because uh, they didn't, there were no like street signs that said, hey, you know, turn left here. But we think that this is the way that they would have traveled all the way through Jerusalem, which is where Herod would have been, on to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just a few miles from Jerusalem. It's just right there. But it is a long trek. It took him 40 days. We think he probably got there when he was about two years old. And the reason for that is because Herod is going to question them about um, when did the star appear. And they say, they're going to say it was about two years. 
So that's where we get that information. So it wasn't a mad dash. It wasn't three of them. You guys see how we got all these narratives wrong? We got songs we sing, Week Three Kings, right? It's one of my favorite ones. Even if you, like, if you jazz it up a little bit, it's great. But what are they looking for? They're looking for the king of the Jews. So imagine, you've got to get your mind around this. They're rolling into Jerusalem. There's a caravan of Persians. Now, how the Babylonians, what have they done to the Jews in the past? Taken them captive. So people are going to be nervous because this isn't the first time. They're currently under Roman rule. And so they're going to be a little bit nervous. It's creating this uproar of what is going on. And so they're looking for the king of the Jews and they're telling everybody. Now, let's go to the end of Jesus' life. Think to what Pilate said. In, in Matthew 27, verse 11, it says, And now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. You think he knew what was going on with these magi when they showed up? Absolutely. There's an uproar of people looking for the king of the Jews. What's he referencing? Are you the one that caused all that problem way back when? Is that you? This is, what, this is why they called him that. Where else is he referenced as king of the Jews? Never again mentioned outside of this moment. It all connects. It all interlaces, right? So we see the prophecy of where he's going to come, and we see the prophecies of where he's going to be born. We've got the Magi coming in. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, going to verse 7, it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So you see where he's looking for what time the star showed up? When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Remember the part I'm talking about them being dream interpreters? Here you're seeing it. Somebody comes to them in a dream. Now, how many were there? It's not three. There were three gifts. That's where that idea comes from. This is all just, just bad doctrine, I guess, basically. Is it that big of a deal? It's probably not, but we want to be right. Now, this star travels before them. It talks about the star moving around, and it appears right over where the child was. So is this a natural star? Is this a supernatural event that's going on? I say supernatural event. There are people that have tried to chase the star. They try to say that Jupiter and Venus happen to line up at the right time. The problem is with this is that it says the star keeps moving from them and appears right over the child. So is it possible that God has everything lined up and, and Jupiter and Venus cross-sect? Because you see that several times. It is possible. But this seems to be something supernatural to me. But even bigger than this, how did these guys from Babylon even know anything about this? Why on earth would they be the ones that recognized the star? We've got to go back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Babylon had taken Israel captive. They brought them to Babylon. They're there. Remember uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the whole, the whole story. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar promotes David to the, the chief magistrate over the wise men. And they studied philosophy. They had the Hebrew scriptures. Also, when they were allowed to leave Babylon later on, not all of them left. 
So these guys were trained by David, or excuse me, Daniel, not David, by Daniel of what to look for. That's why they knew what this star meant. That's why they knew where he would be born. Is because Daniel had told them way back in 605 B.C. That's when that whole thing happened. You see God putting the pieces in place. You see that chess match going on. He's laying all of this out way ahead of time, 600 years ahead of time. Now, why those three gifts? Could have brought anything. Well, when you, bring, when you approach a king, you bring gold. You don't bring platinum. You don't bring aluminum. You bring gold. It's a, it's a gift to a king. When you're dealing with frankincense, frankincense was used in temple worship, and that was what was burned on that incense altar. And myrrh is always used for embalming. You've got the king being born who will be the ultimate sacrifice by laying down his life. Those are those three gifts. They are symbolic of what the work that Jesus was here to do. Right? Coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Ironically, in order to get both of those uh, fragrances, the frankincense and the myrrh, they actually go in there and they put slashes in the tree. And they wait for it to come out and then they collect it. It's kind of a yellowy, it ends up getting chunky and stuff. But think about the slashes on Jesus' back. By his stripes, we are healed. They have to stripe those trees in order to extract all of that. Now, let's jump back to Luke chapter 2. We're done with the wise men. We're seeing this. You guys see how we've got a lot of bad ideas of how this whole thing works? Well, it gets a little bit better. In Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 8, it says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger and suddenly there was with the angel the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men so it says they were in the same country shepherds so where are they they're in Bethlehem that's where they are they're probably just on the outskirts of town they're watching their sheep now we know that they don't watch sheep outside they bring them indoors during December that's how we know December 25th is very likely not the day that Jesus was born we actually believe it was during the Feast of Tabernacles Sukkot um, it kind of lines up prophetically also but we think that that's when it would have been we don't know again there was no birth certificates or anything like that but we think that's what it would have been which would put us in the September October range somewhere in that range so but born to you this day in the city of David, you're going to find him wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, here's the question. We saw that that's what Mary did, right? Wrapped him in these swaddling cloths and placed him in the manger. Where did she get those cloths? Did she just have them? Now, one explanation is, is anytime you go on a long journey, that you carry those with you. They're swaddling because they would wrap the dead. They would, often people would get sick. They'd get attacked by animals, attacked by thugs, and would be killed. And it was Jewish law that a body had to be buried within 24 hours. So they would bury them along the way, but they would wrap the bodies in these cloths, and that's what they would do. And that is theory number one, and that is possible, because they would have those with them. But the problem with that is, is they weren't scrambling to Bethlehem right? They'd already been there for a while, so why would they be carrying those around with them? Well, there's another theory. You guys want to hear it? I'll tell you in a minute. Let's go to verse 15. 
So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherd. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherd returned, glorifying and praising God, for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So the angel appeared to them and said, Hey, in this, in this day that there's a, a, a child is born, and you'll know him because he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. How did they know to go to Bethlehem? The same country, right? But it didn't tell us the city specifically. So how did they know to go there? And here's a question. Why did, he, why did that angel appear to these shepherds? Of all the people he could appear, shepherds were lowly, right? We know the song, you know, the lowly shepherds, they watched their flocks by night. Because shepherding was not a good thing. These shepherds are like kind of special, actually. Not just because the angel appeared to them. But shepherds didn't, uh, were kind of the outcast of society. They were constantly considered ceremonially uncleansed because of dealing with the sheep. Because sheep are nasty. Right? So they'd always have to mikvah. They were kind of the outskirts of town. It was not a glorifying job. All right? David, remember David, the youngest? What was he doing? He was keeping the sheep. Everybody else was coming looking to be the king. But David, the youngest one, right? The youngest one gets the crap jobs, right? That's the way it goes until they get big enough that they can whip your tail and then they make you help out with some of that stuff. I'm not speaking from experience on that at all. So they're throwing him out there. This isn't a, a job to be proud of. So why shepherds? Why these shepherds? This is what's interesting. So there's something special about Bethlehem because these shepherds here did not raise ordinary sheep. These shepherds raised the lambs that were sold for temple sacrifice, especially for the Passover. Now, as I said, in the songs, they're always called lowly shepherds and all of that. But there was a special group of shepherds that come from the tribe of Levites, which were the priest, right? So they were used, and there would be temple service, and they would care for the sheep and to be used for temple purpose. Because remember, how did a sheep have to be born? Spotless, without defect. That's their job, and they have to determine that as the priest. So these aren't just regular old shepherds. But how did they know where to go? That's the question. This is where it gets interesting to me. And I'm giving this to you as a theory. There is a, I'm going to show you this picture. This is called the Migdal, well, this is an example of it. There's something called the Migdal Eater, which is a Hebrew word. This is a tower, now it's kind of fallen down. And these towers, they're all over uh, Israel. And they're kind of ruins now. But they were used for different things. They had, had the tower, like Uzziah built a tower for watching over. And they would have an upper deck where you would observe things, and then they'd have a lower deck where people would congregate. Well, the Migdal Eater is the tower of the flock. And inside this tower, they would have, um, this is where they would, the, the sheep would give birth to the lambs. And these ones that were born without, as soon as they were born, they would inspect them. And if they were found without spot and without blemish, then they would wrap those lambs in swaddling cloths because a newborn lamb flails like crazy. So they'd wrap them in these cloths and then they'd place them in mangers. Go to the next picture. This is an example of a manger. They were made of stone. There's a child in one. Here's a whole stack of them. These things are found periodically. 
So you would take the Passover lambs, were wrapped in swaddling cloths, and placed in the manger until they calmed down. Do you think maybe that's a picture of Christ? Absolutely. What just happened? How did they know where to go, and why did he choose these shepherds? Because these were special shepherds. And they knew exactly where that tower would be. It would oftentimes be built on the mouth of a cave, if possible, because he'd have more room inside. So it gives a whole new theory to it, right? Can I prove that? No, can't. It wasn't there. But it's interesting, isn't it? How that prophetic picture looks. Now, look at this in Micah 4, verse 8. It says, O you, O tower of the flock, Migdal Eder, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. We're in Micah 4. Remember, we read Micah 5 earlier, where it talks about, O Bethlehem, out of you. That tower of the flock is right there. This is where they raised their sheep. They would inspect them to make sure there was no spot and no blemish. Wrap them in these swaddling cloths. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. I absolutely don't think so. I think Christ is being born as the Passover lamb and is following in the same pattern. I think that's how those shepherds knew exactly where he was. And I think that's why they went and looked for him. They didn't wander around. They weren't asking for directions. They went right to him. Okay? This is the time prior than the Magi showed up. Magi aren't there yet. They get there first. Again, that goes against the uh, nativity scene, but be that as it may. Isn't that amazing to watch how God puts the pieces into place to get to where we are today? This is just the beginning. Because after we get out of here, then we've got to look at what he did. Right? We're just looking at him being born. That alone is amazing of how this fulfills Scripture to a T. But we're just getting started, guys, because, again, to understand how we are in him, we got to understand how he was and be his immature and walk in the ways and the authority that he did. So God is good, amen? amen. I'm telling you what, this word is powerful, and when we drop our traditions and we simply allow Scripture to be Scripture, it is amazing what we will find, is it not?